As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody, welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and to follow on from yesterday's listener question show with Joe and Taylor, we're coming at you like Cleopatra with even more queries today. Joining me to put the world to rights is a man who represented his country at a World Cup, who has dominated soccer media since hanging up his cleats, and who has some of the greatest hair this side of Antoine Griezmann's braids. That's true, right? He is the Duke of Defending, the King of Commentary, the Marquis of Matchday Analysis, the Prince of Podcasting. I could go on all day with these. He's a man whose name you already know because you saw the episode title before you clicked <laughs> it. It's Mr. Jimmy Conrad! Wow, man, I feel like we should hang out more. That is quite an intro. I'm priding myself on stupid intros now, so you've got the latest one there. You're very welcome, Jimmy. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's great to see your face. I know people don't know, but we're looking at each other on Zoom, and it's been a while. We started uh, this adventure together, or at least my adventure in the media space on Kick TV, so it's cool to be reunited, and it feels so good, Ryan. <laughs> it always feels good with you, Jimmy. Oh, God, we've gone there already. So yeah, we did start working together in, I'm going to say, late 2011, when we were put together with Kick TV in, uh, in New York. One of, one of my earliest memories of meeting you, Jimmy, is after maybe the first few days we recorded, we went shirt shopping. Can you remember that? <laughs> I do remember, yeah. So like back in the day before like YouTubers were a big thing and you could wear like clothes that actually express your personality, we were sort of wearing these button-ups and I think neither of us had any sort of TV-ready button-ups. So we went to some department store or something and bought these really lame baggy <laughs> shirts that we ended up wearing for a few weeks. Oh, boy. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have any more of them. They were pretty cheaply made and uh, we had to survive man that was kind of the fun part about kick tv at that time yeah i don't i don't remember those shirts lasting long for many reasons but yeah yeah that was good that was, those were good times to kick tv days they were good times very good times these of course um I, I don't need to give you any more introduction than my uh, silly one i just gave you if you know us soccer you know jimmy generally one of the kindest kindest and nicest people that i know not just in in, in soccer media but in general so it's, it's really good of you to join me today uh for this one and um, tell us tell us what you're up to at the moment as well yeah, so I'm doing a lot of stuff for CBS Sports. Uh, I'm a wagering analyst, of, of all things. You know, when they first got started, they bought the Champions League right from Turner. Champions League rights, excuse me. Uh, not just one. It's not a, it's not a singular <laughs> thing. It's a plural thing. But they, bought, but they bought the rights to more than one game. And uh, as I started to get in there and, and talk to the people, the, the guy that runs talent for them just happened to be my first agent, my me first media agent. And so I kind of used that uh, connection to, to get into the door. And he was handling all the European stuff. So Jamie Carragher and Mike, Micah Richards and um, Roberto Martinez, Kate Abdu, like fantastic over there. But he handed me off to the, to the American-based crew. And uh, they said, yeah, if you want in, do you know anything about gambling? I'm like, I absolutely can know everything I need to know about gambling. So I got in there. I'm a wagering analyst. And it's been nice. It's given me more time on screen. And I get to give some nice analysis as to why I'm betting one way or the other. So I do that with their Champions League and Europa League coverage. I'm doing a, a podcast with them called Que Galasso with Luis Elchigaray, which has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, they're really jumping in with both feet. So if you guys are interested in any of that stuff, uh, I welcome you to come give me a hard time if you <laughs> see me uh, on that. And then, of course, you know, I'm on all the social media stuff, doing a, a new show on Twitch 
twice a week right now, but hoping that I will kick up. So just twitch.tv slash Jimmy Conrad, at Jimmy Conrad on all socials. So I appreciate you. Let me have my shameless plugs. Very nice. Yeah, t take all the plugs you need. And now you're a betting expert. Can you just break down in great detail the difference between decimal and fractional and American style odds? Just, just take 20 minutes or so, please. No, I was a math major in college, and I absolutely cannot break that down. I don't know what the <laughs> hell you're talking about, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. And I've got to say that I've been really, really impressed with CBS's Champions League coverage. Um, without being rude, it didn't have a high bar to break with the previous Champions League courage, coverage. I think we can probably agree. But it's been excellent. I think like particularly that studio report that Kate Abdo and, as you mentioned, Jamie Carragher and Mika Richards, they just, I think what's really rubs off is they're having a really good time doing it. And I think mm -hmm. all the, that's that's for all the all the people uh, yourself and Jenny Chu they have out there and and, and Guillaume Balaguer all all the people who are involved and, and the Glaxo show is wonderful as well. I just think they've just they're just doing a really good job, much like NBC have done with the Premier League. Uh, I think it re it's a it's a credit to soccer in this country when it's done well like that, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're taking a lot of cues from the NBA show with uh, Shaq and. Ernie Johnson and, uh, you know, those guys, like that vibe that they create on the set and it's fun, it's playful. Yeah, they're giving you good analysis, but they're doing it like, yeah, we're all just sitting, you know, at a bar just talking, you know, trash about the game or talking about certain things that we saw. And, and I think that makes it more human. And I think that's what we're seeing, even though they're yeah. really, they're probably all wearing $10,000 suits. Uh, they they uh, definitely come across as just big fans of the game and very passionate about it. And I think Kate's tremendous as a host. So she does an amazing job of kind of moving things along. That first time when she was doing the translating and she was live translating those interviews, I was like, what is happening here? Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's very talented. I, I wonder she's if she's definitely set the, set the bar, Ryan. And we're like, yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to reach there because yeah. she can speak like 15 languages. Yeah, the bar is the bar is a dot to us. It's, it's way yeah, up yeah. there. Um, <laughs> and, and I wonder if the producers are in Mika Richards' ear or in, the other, in Kate Abdo's ear saying, make him laugh, make Mika Richards laugh. It's great because he's got a very infectious yeah, laugh, doesn't he? he? He does. He really does. And I, I think I like when they give each other a hard time, you know, and they lean on you know, different stories that I think even us as fans know about, you know, a specific play that was a big play and having them break that down and yeah, it's great. It's great. I um, I hope to interact with those guys. We're, we're doing stuff on with CBS Sports HQ with uh, Ian Joy and Poppy Miller, Demarcus Beasley. I get to hang out with Lucio Garcia, though, who played for Barcelona and, and won a Champions League with Liverpool. That's been a really fun experience. I used to love watching that guy play. So to be able to actually sit down, well, you know, virtually with and, and talk the game with him has been a big thrill for me. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And that's a good team you've got over there as well with Ian and, and Poppy. And everything. That's, that's, that's excellent stuff. So we've got some listener questions coming up, Jim. Are you, oh, up, are you, up, for a, you up for tackling this? What do you think? Ah, I'm going to two-foot these, these questions. Let's go. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. And by the way, I've got to say, you are looking sharp today. I think I'm looking at maybe a mid-90s Newcastle away jersey right now. Is that correct? That's, that is correct. You are, oh. you are correct. That was, those were the days when I was happier about supporting Newcastle. Now it's just... God damn it, it sucks. It sucks. On, I feel like an Arsenal fan right now, right? You just hope is dying, dying with each passing game. Save your Arsenal thoughts for a little while later because, <laughs> spoiler alert, we got some coming up there, and I know you've got opinions on that for sure. Yeah, that of is course. a beautiful shirt, though. That was, that, was, that was peak Premier League for me, mid-90s, mid to late-90s. You got the granddad collar going on on that shirt. That was, was that your sort of entry point into the Premier League when you picked up with Newcastle in that kind of time? Yeah, because when I was a kid growing up, the only games you could really find were Manchester United. And rightfully so. They were the best team in the league and, and were really changing the way the game was played. They had these personalities. You know, Beckham was slowly starting to emerge, at least that class. And then, But you really had Cantona. And, and uh, Cantona, I think, was really the guy that I looked at the most. But, but even, um, you know, Dennis Irwin and, and Steve Bruce, you, you know, I still – I look at him now as a manager doesn't know what the hell he's doing. But at that time, <laughs> he was a good center back and – Gary Pallister and, and Schmeichel and Gold. I got to do something with Schmeichel. I got to play with him in a charity match, which was really cool to just like, wow, I can't believe Peter Schmeichel's behind me. But yeah, so, so you know, that team was very good. But all my friends were like, oh, Manchester United this, Manchester United. I'm like, I can't support Man United. You know, I can't. I'm not going to be a bandwagoner. And that's when Newcastle famously beat him 5-0 that season. And I was like, that's my squad. All my guys were all upset. They're all sad. And so I just I like the black and white, and they they had a team that was worth getting behind, and some really talented players, and obviously that was a slap that they put on, on Manchester United. So yeah. they became my squad, and it's been a steady decline since then. Ryan, thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> well, you had a time up there, that's for sure. I did. And I did. That I did. five nil was that 
Philippe Albert doing the lob over Schmeichel? Was it that game? That's right. Oh, That's the one. Those were the days. And then Faustino Aspria arrived. Oh, glory so days. Glory so days. Good. What a wonderful club. Anyway, we've been chatting far too long, and we've been ignoring these listener questions, which we should get to post-haste. Let's start with one from Andrew Johnson. If Columbus Crew is the AFC Wimbledon of MLS <laughs> and Austin <laughs> is the MK Dons, you following so far? I am. Then who is the Millwall of MLS? Let me. I'll, okay, I'll, so give me some. Yeah, give me some context. I'll here. lay some context, some groundwork here for you. Millwall, obviously, a team in the Championship who've never been in of the course. Premier League. They were in the First Division before the Premier League happened. Uh, they're from South London, an area called Bermondsey. Technically, the closest club to where I grew up, actually. And there's a lot of clubs around there. So a, a, a club I'm quite, I, I know quite well. They purport to be. A, f- a club for families, Jimmy. And they try very hard to do that. However, they do have a little bit of a problem with their fans. They have had since the 80s being uh, problems with hooliganism, problems with racism. Uh, we saw in that game, was it last week or a week or two ago, when a game against Derby when um, uh, their fans decided to boo when the players took the knee. They're a very mm-hmm. disappointing bunch, Jimmy. My best friend in the world is a Millwall fan. My best friend in the world, apart from you, I should say, uh, is a Millwall fan back home. Uh, he's, he's not anywhere near affiliated with this uh, kind of behavior but there is it's it goes it's hand in hand with Millwall I'll give you an example when I went to Millwall when I used to go back in the day with my team Wimbledon you go down like this metal tunnel you when you when you get on the train the away fans are completely separated from the home fans you have no instance in which you'll see the home fans if you're a traveling away fan because it's like you don't want to they, the police do not want that to happen basically once you get in there and you're in the where the away fans sit you look over to your left and there are fans who don't watch the game they watch the away fans they just shout stuff and uh, they don't even have their eyes on the field at all that's what you're dealing with at millwall okay so <laughs> that's the context and okay. i would i would suggest that there is no mls team specifically like that in that they have absolute heathens for fans i'm not painting the brush of all mill fans sure, as I say. Sure, they're good sure. ones but they are they have a real problem down there in south london okay. um but i will i'll pos- i'll give you some options here i got okay. i got one i already know one i got it hit me it hit me i'll, I'll hit save you, you. I'll, I'll save you the options if you want to save some face and not have to throw any any clubs under the bus here go on shoot uh, what do you got so so i want to start with i watched this one clip it used to be in the middle of like fifa World Cup, like back in the day, and it was everybody loves us because we are Millwall. So that always stuck with me that they they have that chant. So so you're saying this team struggles with hooliganism, mm-hmm. That's small small group right within it, and also struggles with some racism. Okay, small group right? Yeah. That sounds very NYCFC to me. They they struggle with those two things as well. Uh, that would be that would be my number one choice. I'm sure that it's it's littered throughout a lot of clubs around the world, not just isolated to to MLS and, and the states, but yeah, NYCFC is the first one that jumped out at me as you started to give more context as to uh, what, well, let's say, let's say that the painful reminders of who supports this club. Yeah, uh, and I think NYCFC has, as a, as a, even though they have a really short history overall, they've they've ticked a few of those boxes. So I've made some notes here. The first line here I was about to read you says issues with racism and neo Nazis equals NYCFC. <laughs> so we're, we're on the same page there. Done. We're done. Move on to the next question. Not, Andrew Johnson, I hope that, that answered that. I would me. not want to tar NYCFC with being completely like that because they don't have the problems that are rife at Millwall. But I think that's a close comparison. I also looked at sort of teams who are a bit rough on the field as well. And okay. I, did, I ran some numbers. Apparently, it's Rail Salt Lake who are the, um, traditionally the worst <laughs> team in terms of fouls committed. Uh, the, shout, all, shout out to Kyle Beckerman. Shout out to Kyle Beckerman. Kyle Beckerman is the worst. He's 38. I think he's had... Like he's like the Sergio Ramos of um, of MLS. That's my <laughs> understanding. Um, and I looked up the numbers in MLS. They are the all time leaders. They've committed 756 fouls this season. 123 mm-hmm. yellow cards. That can't be right. Yeah, yeah. Seven red cards this season. So yeah, Real Salt Lake are the most penalized team in the league, effectively. So th- there's that. And also, I had one more team which I wanted to bring in as a mill comparison. An underdog. An underachiever in arguably the biggest market, like Millwall are, who don't always fill their stadium, never won MLS Cup, Red Bulls. Hmm. So yeah, that's a good shout. Yeah. That's a good shout. I guess, I, guess, I guess the knock on the NYCFC comparison is that they're owned by City Football Group, and I think the knock on Red Bulls would be that they're also owned by a big conglomerate. So, so I know Millwall you know, doesn't have that type of backing, but... Yeah, I think I think with regard to some of the issues, 
I still lean with NYCFC. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You know, obviously there's some some uh, allegations against David Villa as well with regard to, you know, that uh, sexual abuse or, or uh, harassment, sexual harassment. So, so I don't know. That kind of continues to tick boxes for NYCFC <laughs> overall. Uh, so Mill have in the past had written on the back of their shirts, nobody likes us, we don't care. Mm. So who's that in MLS? Do you think who's the least the team that is the least liked? Well, I think the Galaxy is probably the least liked, in my opinion. Mm. Um, you know, they've won the most. They've sp probably spent the most money on players. Uh, and I think people do enjoy seeing them struggle, which they're going through at the current moment. I could see NYCFC, though, being there, too, for a lot of the same reasons. You know, they're in a big market. They're going to get more publicity than probably some of the smaller markets. They're going to attract bigger names. And, and they're also owned by a massive conglomerate. So, you know, you kind of want to see... Those those uh, those teams get humbled from time to time. So I would say those those two teams are the ones that stand out. So there you go, Andrew Johnson. Uh, no team is quite as terrible as Millwall, but maybe NYCFC <laughs> is the closest. That's the uh, conclusion <laughs> we're reaching. All right, Jim. Let's move on to another question from Kenneth Saden. How and why are Barcelona players taking pay cuts for a few years while the team is still going to spend money on transfers? So there is the news that Barcelona have, agree, have reached an agreement uh, with their playing squad to reduce salaries by 122 million euros over the next three years. Uh, this is a club, Jimmy, who do know how to make money. They were described by Deloitte as the kings of revenue in uh, earlier this year. Earlier this mm -hmm. year was uh, seemed like a long time ago, but hey. Um, they, they made a record 840 million euros in the 2018-19 right. season. And uh, in terms of spending money on transfers, let's look at what they did this year. They, they, they got um, Dest for 20-something million. Uh, Miralem Pjanic was like three times as much as that. A Trincao was a lot of money as well. They spent like well over 100 million on players in a season where they have been, uh, you know, set up to, uh, to struggle here. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, how can you keep buying players when you are clearly struggling, when you're asking players to take pay cuts, when you ask the government to help pay your non-playing staff through a furlough scheme. It's a, it's a difficult one. I, I'm, I, might, I might have a suggestion of an answer. I'll let, I'll let you shoot. No, for me, I think there might be some optics here, you know, that it looks like a very uh, charitable move. Not to say that these players don't want to do that and want to figure it out, but being in that situation, I think, you know, you feel like you're you've deserved what you're getting. And so not, maybe not everybody uh, on the outside feels that way based on how you're performing, but, but usually you've worked pretty hard to reach a certain level of salary. And so to just kind of give it back without, I don't know, like, I, I think one of the questions have been in enough locker rooms, you know, I've been in a, the leader of players unions and stuff. Well, what is everybody else doing? You know, how, how, how is everybody else sacrificing? So I can see why the whole team got behind it. But I think there also has to be some level of sacrifice, you know, from everybody. And I can understand why the players might be holding other people accountable. But it's 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 a cool move. And if it comes from a great place, I'm all for it. But I always feel like there's a shell game with these types of clubs, not just Barcelona. I think it's clubs around the world and at all levels trying to figure out their finances and how they're going to make everything work. I know there's new board that's going to be voted in in January. I'm sure that's going to shift a couple things. Yeah. Uh, they're definitely going to unload Messi at some point. I think there's different ways to rework contracts, which are – let's say reasonable bonuses that sometimes don't hit the books in the same way because they're considered bonuses as opposed to straight up like weekly salary. So again, I don't want to take anything away from the, the positivity of what this move might seem and mean to not just the players and then the club, but also to the fans. But I wouldn't be surprised given the, the amount of tax evasion that that just some notable players have done in the country of Spain sometimes that that there could be a shell game afoot here and as they try to balance their books in a different type of way they do need to sign some players you know i don't i don't they, there's no way around that but i think once they lose messi that'll probably up free up some salary as well jimmy mentions uh, rampant tax evasion just going to call up the tss <laughs> lawyers for a second uh, i'll be right back well i think that they, the the why of it jimmy is because they essentially are not making as much money as they did. They were described as the kings of revenue. You've got to remember, they play at the Camp Nou. It's the, it must be the biggest stadium in Europe. 99,000 people get in there. 
they made 160 million euros a year in matchday revenue before um, before the pandemic. They're losing literally millions every game. Uh, I, I understand. I've got some stats here. As a proportion of total income, matchday revenue at Barcelona uh, reached 19% last season, which is a higher percent or yeah. the season before the pandemic. That is a higher percentage than any other of the major clubs. So in that case, that's that's the reason why they're doing it because they're simply not making enough money to cover it. And I think I read that Messi alone makes 30 million euros a year. Can you imagine? That's right. Incredible. No, I can't, but it's, it must be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it must be nice, right? And so they've got, uh, yeah, that they, I think their, like their museum apparently made millions a year just from revenue from their museum in the stadium. I believe that's open again now, but that closed for a long time. And mm-hmm. as, as for how you can justify spending on players and stuff while, while, uh, while asking others to pay, or while current players to take t- pay cuts, sorry, I think it's because it kind of comes from different revenue streams and different different silos of those money, if that makes sense. Like a new, Barcelona are getting through a lot of managers lately. New managers need mm-hmm. new players. They have to stay competitive. They have to stay at the very top echelons. So to do that, you have to spend money. That's just the, mm-hmm. that's just the name of the game, isn't it? I think that's the reason why. If, you di- if they suddenly didn't spend any money at all, wouldn't be good. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be good. I think they're in an interesting time, Barcelona, in general. I mean, they're starting to round into form at this current moment and maybe trying to find their best 11. But, and I liken this, this might not be a like for like, but I think there are some comparisons there with the U.S. men's national team about three or four years ago where you had your older guys that were clearly getting older, but they're still good enough that you want to rely on them. And obviously, Messi's a bit of an anomaly here. You probably rely on him as long as he wants to be relied upon. But then you have the younger crew that just aren't ready yet to take on that responsibility. And that's kind of what I'm seeing. And for the the ones that are in the middle that you thought were going to help you kind of kind of fill that gap, fill that void... They're just not panning out. So for the U.S. men's national team perspective, we didn't qualify for two Olympics in a row. Like that generation of players, we just didn't produce for whatever reason. I'm sure they can write a nice book about it. Like what happened in this five or six year span where we couldn't produce anybody of note? I think Jordan Morris and Aaron Long are the only two players that really stand out uh, from that kind of 1990 to 1995 being born in that. And then when you look at Barcelona, you know, you got the Messi's, PK's, Jordi Alba's, uh, Busquets, and then you have Ansu Fati. And there's such a big gap there. Griezmann hasn't really panned out. Coutinho hasn't really panned out in the, in the way that we all expected them to, given on paper that they should be better than they are. And I think Barcelona's just kind of going through that transition. Plus, you're getting to the end of Messi's career, maybe at the club. I think he's going to be gone in the summer to Man City. I don't think there's any question. Yeah. I, don't, don't, I don't know what they could really do, especially if he doesn't like Kuman or whoever else they can bring in. Unless Xavi and Iniesta... And Iniesta just got hurt. He's out for four months. And like in that four months, he's like, hey, I want to go back and manage, you know, be the co-manager with Xavi and bring back Xavi and Iniesta to Barcelona. And Messi wants to stay. That's the only way I could see it happening. But I think he's gone else otherwise. And I don't think Xavi wants to touch the job until the Messi situation is done, frankly. Like, I don't I wouldn't want to be associated with pushing Messi out the door. So right. I think Xavi's just kind of waiting to see and then maybe in, inheriting a team where the younger players are a little bit better, bringing in some other players and away they go and a new generation of Barcelona uh, begins again. That's that's the thing though, Jim, isn't it? It's it, the, the squad planning doesn't seem to have been great. It doesn't seem like they've planned very well for life after Messi, does it? No, it doesn't. Not at all. Though I think Ansu Fati has a real chance of being a special player, but but nobody was ever going to replace Messi straight up. You yeah. know, I think that they were always going to have to kind of piecemeal what he brings to the table. So for maybe they can find two players that can do what Messi can do, but they're never going to find one that's just like him. Absolutely. Do you get any tingling of joy when a big team does badly? We've got a couple in the Premier League at the moment. We've got Barcelona and even Real Madrid suffering a little bit. Does it? Does that get? Does that excite you? I'm I'm a I'm a person who supports an underdog team when i see a big team i don't it's not like schadenfreude it's just like oh cat among the pigeons i like this do you you, you get that feeling at all well well i do think one of my hobbies is watching arsenal fans suffer you know i think that's uh, i don't know if you guys consider arsenal a big team anymore you might not so there's a joke in itself (laughs) but uh i don't know I i think there are times where i think yeah, it is kind of cool to see a Barcelona and Real Madrid struggle and that Atletico Madrid or even a Real Sociedad might win La Liga or, you know, Juve finally might not win or Bayer Leverkusen could win the Bundesliga or we could see another Leicester City in the Premier League. I think those are very cool. That's what makes it so special is that finally somebody broke through uh, that you never expected to go and do the business. But there is something about, and I grew up in this and so did you, where I just felt like the world was a better place when Manchester United was good, you know, and, and I want to see them suffer every once in a while, but... I kind of like them to be good, too. It's just something that I know. I, f- I feel comfort in that for whatever reason, that the same kind of big clubs are always kind of in charge. Um, and so there, I have a little bit of that nostalgia, I'd say, just just for kind of how things were and where I was in my life at that time. I feel like I'm taking a 
deep dive into the psychology. I need therapy. Keep going. But, but uh, yeah, we have some tea for me. You're drinking tea. <laughs> but um, it's it's there is something special, I think, to and I guess this is an American perspective where we have parity. We have built-in parity to our American sports systems here. Like the worse you do, you get the number one draft pick. Like why should you get rewarded for being crap? You know, you shouldn't be that. That's that's. So once you start to get introduced to you know the the promotion relegation system and how that works and and what you put in you usually get out and you get rewarded for being good and not being uh, punished in some ways for being good like we over here. Um, yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I do like to see the underdogs. The Leicester City thing will will always be like peak peak unbelievable. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, how did that even happen? Kind of moment. I know, absolutely. And you're talking about uh, things being better when Manchester United were good, uh, Taylor Rockwell would definitely agree with that. <laughs> I think that probably speaks to our age, though, because I always feel like, the, as I mentioned earlier, the mid to late 90s were my favorite Premier League era, but I think that's just my age. And I also think that no good music's been made since 1999. Hey, <laughs> I know that about you. I know that, yeah. <laughs> you do know that about me. I think everybody I talk to knows that about me. Yeah. All right, I hope we've covered off that question for you, Kenneth. Uh, thank you very much for that one. Let's move on to Raghav Gupta, who are asks about Maurizio Pochettino, Jim. What exactly has Poch done to be linked with every big job in the world? Uh, Ravgov <laughs> says he started watching soccer when he was already at Spurs around 2017. Okay, yeah. So I would say, first and foremost, he's demonstrated a potential that he can be a top manager. So that, that starts there. Second, he's pretty much the only name available right now. So, of course, he's going to be linked to every big job. Maxi Allegri would be another one that I'd throw out there. Who's of an age. You know, he's not <laughs> he's not like an 85-year-old Harry Redknapp still angling to try to get back in. Though, fair play to Sam Allardyce for taking over. Big, big uh, West Brom, big Sam coming so back I, in. As soon as that news came out to me, I was, I was joking, sending out all the Sam Allardyce tweets. And then they actually did it. <laughs> they <know>. did it. <laughs> I mean, Arsenal must be disappointed because they're close to the relegation zone. So that would have been a nice hire, I think, if Arteta doesn't work out. But I think that that he also has a lot of experience as a player, uh, Pochettino. He played for the Argentinian national team. He played for Espanyol for many years in La Liga. Um, and he, uh, he, he learned from some of the best coaches, uh, including Marcelo Bielsa, who is very heralded now and al has always been appreciated by the people that are in the know managerial when he was kind of in the just in South America only there for a while before he kind of really burst on the scene for a lot of new new English fans about Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds. What I like about Pochettino is that he did really well with Southampton in particular. I thought he did an excellent job with them, which got him other opportunities. He went to Spurs, who haven't won a trophy or haven't won the league since 61. You know, I mean, it's been, it's, it's been a long time. So now you're asking him to take over this club that still has never, they're like a nearly club, right? They're nearly there. And he got them even nearlier, if that's even a word. Like he got them to a Champions League final. I was at that final. And as excited as I was to be there, that game sucked. That was like the worst 90 minutes. I remember I was sitting next to Luca Toni, which was random because I played against him in the 2006 World Cup. And I was like, wow, Luca Toni, look how, this is crazy, man. Cool. Life's crazy. But we both looked at each other like, this This game sucks. Like, this is a terrible game. And uh, I felt bad for the Spurs fans. It would have been cool to see them win a trophy. Liverpool, I'm sure, feel a lot different. But, uh, you know, they're close. And, and and I think when he got fired, that was probably as far as he was going to take him. And now Jose Mourinho's coming in and, and uh, making them a bit tougher. And now that's giving them a little bit more of an edge. And they made some good signings. I know there's a, probably a Spurs question coming up about uh, Ndombele. But, um I was going to say that that that's why. I mean, he he's still of a, a very young. He's vibrant. I think he's got some ideas. He's going to learn from his mistakes. And we could argue that whatever club he goes to next could be the club he has the most success at. Yeah, I think you're quite right. Though. It's interesting you mentioned the Champions League final because at that stage of Pochettino's Tottenham career, things were going downhill. I think that Champions League run kind of belied the problems that Tottenham had. Even sure. that semi-final before that. They, but even before that in the league, they were suffering pretty badly. And by the, it seemed like his players had almost given up on him by the time he did leave. So that's that's an interesting facet of Pochettino's career. But to, to, to go back to the question and look at pre-2017 when Regal started uh, looking at Pochettino, as you mentioned, he was a, a big player at Espanyol in the, in, in the Liga. He had a couple of spells there and much loved by that team. And basically, he retired he was retired by Ernesto Valverde, who didn't want him, basically. So he's like, OK, I'll go get my degree. I think he got a degree um, in sports management. He did all his coaching badges, came back, and um, it was it was the 2008-9 season. 7-8? No, 8-9 season when he came back. And Espanyol were in a relegation zone. Actually, I think I wrote a Kick TV video about this back in the day. That's why I'm recording it. But, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was... Um, 
he, he came in and they were in the relegation zone in January, basically brought them to mid-table and got this tremendous amount of respect for that. He, he drew, in, I think it was his first game, he drew with Pep Guardiola's great Barcelona side. So he, he was like, have, have this massive contract. Pochettino is here. And it was this kind of, the, the style he brought in immediately was that high press, that one-on-one defensive cover, you know, the 4-2-3-1 that he likes. And crucially, I think, is the tools that Pochettino uses. That's why he's so coveted. He uses academy players, he uses young players, doesn't spend huge amounts of money and gets the result and uses a pretty fashionable system, a system that is obviously prevailing at the moment, I think. So that 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 for me explains how he's got yeah. to where he got. That explains to me how he gets to Southampton. Even, you know, he didn't speak a word of English when he turned up, but got Southampton to their best finish in the Premier League and um, they were never better than under him arguably so that's why he came to be- kind of become the hottest property in the world he-, he earned his dues basically coming up through those ranks and um, and as I say it d- he did suffer at the end of his Tottenham reign but it like most managers in this game Jimmy it doesn't seem to have affected his uh, his viability for a new job so you, you mentioned no. that he-, he could go anywhere he likes if you had to- if you had to guess what do you think Oh, well, I think he's waiting for the Manchester United job, frankly. Um, I, it's Ole Gunnar always is just enough. I don't know. Maybe he won't be. Uh, I don't think he'd go to Arsenal, but, geez, I didn't think Mourinho would end up at Manchester United or Tottenham. So <laughs> crazier things have happened for sure. I, I think he could probably do well, potentially, with, with Arsenal. They just need a breath of fresh air. They have a really tough week coming up. Mm. If they don't get past this and they somehow lose to... They play Chelsea, they play Man City in the Cup, they got Everton this weekend, and they got Brighton right before the, the new year. It, it, honestly, if they're uh, you know steaming pile of poop at that point, I think you got to let them go and let bring somebody else in who has a transfer window to, to maybe fix yeah. a couple things. I don't know. That's, that's a whole Arsenal equation there. But yeah, Pochettino, I don't know. Um, I don't think we're going to see him in La Liga, even though I thought maybe he would consider it. But uh, once the Barcelona job came and went and they gave it to Koeman instead, I didn't think we'd see him in Spain. I don't think he'll go back to Espanol. I think he's got bigger ambitions than that with all yeah. due respect to Espanol. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I, I assume he's had a couple cracks, but at this point, because he's waiting, I know Maxi Allegri's learning English and he wants to get, get into uh, the Premier League as well. You know, it's, it's tough, but I, I could see him potentially waiting for that, that United job. But Ole Gunnar, again, like one, one week we're like, man, he has it all figured out. And the next week, like, no, nah, they're crap, man. And he's, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So uh, a bit of an anomaly there, Ole Gunnar. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you say, there are a few managers, a few really top managers out there out of work. We've got Allegri, we've got Pochettino. Tim Sherwood's still available, guys. He's still available. He's out there. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know about... I think, I think you're probably right. Manchester United does seem like a good destination for him, even if it's not you know, the, the right setup and things are right off the field at the moment necessarily and probably very much the same for Arsenal, things declining off the field as much as they are on the field. I think I think he's mentioned he wouldn't go to Barcelona because of his loyalty to Espanyol, who of right. course the other big team in the city. Um, maybe Real Madrid would be viable for him if that t- comes up, if, if, Zidane, if Zidane decides to jog off again as, he, as is his want. Um, but the one we've mentioned a couple of times uh, on on the podcast, Jimmy, and I don't, I just don't think it would happen. But I'd like to, I'd like it to happen. Is Borussia Dortmund? Can you imagine po- Pochettino at Borussia Dortmund with those weapons? That's I, true. It would be tremendous, wouldn't it? It would be tremendous. That would be a nice spot for him. I don't know why I feel this way, but my initial reaction to that is that he'll feel like that's a step down in some ways. You know, you get a taste of that Premier League life. It's a little bit more glamorous, probably. Um, probably takes all that ambition that you might have as, as a manager to go to Dortmund's. Uh, even though I think he'd be a great fit there for all the reasons that you mentioned, what makes him special, playing the younger players, developing younger players. They are a factory for that for that mindset. But um, yeah, for whatever reason, I feel like he would see that as a step down. You yeah, know? I, I can see I what know. you're saying. I think that's yeah. ultimately the reason why it wouldn't happen. And yeah, right. Premier League, very glamorous. I did actually live in uh, Southampton for three years. I went to university there. The area around St. Mary's is where a lot of things happen at nighttime. That's all I'm going to say, Jimmy. Uh, so, but it's, he certainly moved up in the world. Anyway, uh, we're going to answer plenty more listener questions. But for now, we're going to have a quick word from the sponsors of today's show. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Jamie, let's get back to the listener questions. I got one here for you from Mr. Dan Harner. Thank you very much for your question, Dan. Uh, Dan says, I keep hearing the phrase press resistant, most recently describing <laughs> Tongi Undembele against Manchester City. Jimmy, what are the traits, characteristics, or behaviors that makes a player press resistant? <laughs> Wait, are we talking about the media? Like he doesn't want to do interviews? So we talk it on the field. So, so Mourinho's press e- resistant. Yes, he is. So yeah, if you're talking about media, I think I think his manager Jose Mourinho's got that figured out. <laughs> With regard to Ndombele, what I really like is his ability to hold the ball under pressure. I think that's the biggest thing that you can play the ball to him in any situation. So when I was playing. And when I got to play on the national team, when I was on the field with the likes of Claudio Reyna, John O'Brien, who played at Ajax uh, for many years, and just these guys are really special players, I could put the ball to them in any situation that they were in. They never looked rattled. They always could hold the ball, doesn't matter how many people were on their back. And then they would, not only would they be able to hold the ball under pressure, but they'd also make the right pass to get out of it. You know, they'd unlock the whole thing. And I was like, man, this is. I've seen some players before, and obviously I've played against a lot of special players too, but to see it like, as your own teammate, to have them bail you out of situations when you're a lowly center back who just wants to get the ball off his feet as quick as possible, it's nice to have those types of players around who just bring a calmness to it. And I think Ndombele, especially this season, has been excellent with regard to that. I know he plays higher up the field, but when he receives the ball, it's really hard to defend him because he can roll you either to the left or to the right. So if you want to get close to him, he's so good at holding his body, and he seems like a a pretty strong guy and they got a good center of gravity Yeah, that now that he's found a little bit of comfort level with knowing what Mourinho wants out of him. And there's a nice understanding there. He seems to have relaxed himself, which has allowed the team to really take some strides, I think as a transition yeah. and in a, in a way that makes him a little bit more dynamic that when he gets the ball, he can wait to potentially have other people come into the play or he can spring Hingman's son or Harry Kane's done a very, very good job of drifting wide this season. And they find him there, and then Hingman's son kind of runs between the two center backs. They've scored a ton of goals that way. So, um, uh, but Ndombele is really the guy that that allows that to happen because once he unlocks that immediate pressure, it opens up gaps for those guys to run into. And then Harry Kane's getting a lot of the assists, but I feel like Ndombele is getting a a lot of those hockey assists, those second assists that would be unlocking a lot of the stuff. And yeah, he's no, a big reason. If Sp- yeah, if Spurs, yeah, I'm also if Spurs end up winning something in consequence, I mean Ndombele, I think is going to be a big reason why. Yeah, I think you're quite right. I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there with the press resistance. The, uh, it's about the, receiving the ball under the pressure, but not just that, but escaping the pressure. I think mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. his, his real art form is. Just a, a tremendous dribbler and you know, he's got the strength to beat those players to get out of those small spaces. I think that's what I would define as his press resistance. It's that, it's that just being able to get over the, out of those tight spaces. But also, you know, he, he can break break up the press by drawing fouls sometimes if he stops yep, play. Yep. And just, sure. But I think it's mainly about he's very good very quick in transition, very mobile, and able to dribble through and escape those tight spaces. I think I think that's how I would uh, define uh, his qualities there. And you know, he's very very good on the counter. And you can look at. So I think I think we've seen Bruno Fernandez be described as 
press resistant a little bit. When when we saw that midfield diamond that um, United had against City, and that if you were, I'm sorry if you had to watch that game, Jimmy. I watched it, but it was a uh, pretty dreadful. <laughs> the Manchester derby. Yeah, I want I want all ninety of those min- minutes of my life back. But I, yes, keep going. I know it's one of those games where you just think, what happened? I can't recall yeah. a single thing that happened. But what I do recall <laughs> is that they had the diamond and sort of putting. Um, uh, Bruno sort of north of that diamond and in a quite an advanced role it able it was enabled him to use his sort of dribbling skills and to, to, to beat players and to break the city press as well mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. though there wasn't much of a press going on from city that day I must admit but I think I think Undombele definitely uh, has, has mastered that and he had a very difficult start as you inferred at yeah. Tottenham uh, with with uh, you know um, fitness issues and not being used to his to his best but uh very very good the curious thing though of course was the game against Liverpool that big game um La Celso used over him and Undombele I think usually you know they kind of trade places quite often wasn't even used in the game so it's curious yeah. how he's such a good weapon and yet isn't number one relied upon player in that position yeah I was actually pretty surprised because I thought that given the vulnerability of Liverpool's back four I thought that was going to be a bit of an issue but I don't know I mean Lo Celso dropped the dime that that freed uh, Hingman's son for the goal so I, I, I would argue that Mourinho thought he made the right call there but there is something about having a player because I think Ndombele is better at getting out of pressure and also thing one thing I wanted to add is when he gets out of pressure, it's not like he plays side to side, which still in, invites more pressure, right? If you play a square ball, that's a real big cue for everybody that's maybe new to the sport, that that's a big cue to continue to press because when the ball goes square, the, the, the angles of being able to pass out of that are pretty slim, mm. especially if the passing lanes are cut the right way. So yeah, that might be great he does that, but what he does really well is he turns out of that pressure and continues to drive forward. He's very good at breaking the lines with the ball, and yeah. that really puts a lot of pressure on the back line to like, okay, crap, do I step to him, or do I just kind of hold my space because I got Harry Kane off my shoulder, and then human son's kind of slashing in and on the right? You know, and that, that makes such a big difference. And uh, again, I was I agree with you. I was actually pretty surprised he didn't play against Liverpool too. Yeah, yeah, I think you've nailed it there once again with that, those quick first-time passes on the counter. He's able to, you know, transition so well. It's, he, he's a good player, Jimmy, and, and Tottenham are quite a good team he's at very the moment. Good. So let's, uh, let, let's seg that to uh, the inevitable question I'm going to ask you. Tottenham, can they do it? I think they can. You know, I think, I think the interesting question is, because have, they have the depth. I like the Carlos Vinicius signing. I think he's a number nine that's not Roberto Saldado that actually can, <laughs> you know, hold the ball up and bring people in, but also score. You know, he's already been a nice replacement for Harry Kane in the Europa League. He's already scored a couple good goals there and, like, combined with other players to score good goals, which I think was very cool to see. So that's a great, great signing. I think he's on loan from Benfica, so well played for them to kind of recruit him and figure out a way to get him into the team. Um, Gareth Bale, I don't know if he's going to come good or not. His his head seemed to be in the clouds. He could seems pretty disinterested. But what if they can figure out a way to get him locked in? I mean, that's a that's a massive name, a guy that's got a lot of quality that that you can bring in to the team. And then uh, another one that I like, obviously, in Dembele, being able to be more impactful is very good. Uh, Sergio Reguilón is the last one that I thought mm. was good. Oh, you got Doherty, you got uh, Hoiberg. Actually, those guys. Hoiberg, for me, is like that that grit. I mean, Mourinho, if you watch that All or Nothing documentary, was looking for them to be tougher, to be jerks out there. And Hoiberg is definitely that, and he can play as well. You got Doherty that can, that can do the same out wide. And then Reguillon on the other side. It's really strengthened in a lot of different ways. And you have also players that they had signed previous that hadn't really shown their true potential, and Dombelli being probably the number one. Lucas Moore has been good in the Europa League. I think it's just going to be hard for them to juggle both, but they have the depth to do it. Mm. He's going to win one trophy. I just don't know if it's going to be the league or the Europa League. Whatever one it is, it'll be the best one, says Josie Mourinho, I'm <laughs> quite sure. But it, yeah, I think I feel like I feel like that. Uh, my perspective for them is the same way I kind of feel about Atletico Madrid. If they if they don't do it this year, they're not going to do it in a long time. Yeah, basically. yeah, I agree. So that now is a very good chance for them to do so. And as you say, they have strengthened a lot. They are. I think a lot of it's mentality as well. Going back to that documentary, he's got them to be a bunch of Eric Dyers, which is what he wanted basically. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we want all of so them to go good. in the stands and fight people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he wants passion. That's what he gets yeah, he from Eric he Dyer. Gets it. He gets Definitely. it. So I, his his sort of love of Eric Dyer. Um, in that documentary, I just assumed it's because he, you know, grew up in Portugal. They probably have a, a lot of affinity for uh, one yeah. another. They speak, speak the same sense. language. I thought yeah. it was just a bit of that, but no, there's there's something else, isn't it? It's definitely a mentality thing. So uh, that that's interesting how that's uh, that's panned out there. Uh, good luck to Tottenham this year. 
Great stuff. All right, let's move <laughs> on to uh, another question. Jackie Choi asks, this is one, this is one, Jimmy, you're going to have much more perspective on than I do. How do teams decide who will take penalties in a shootout and in what order? Uh, Jackie says, I just watched as San Jose got knocked out of the playoffs with their fantastic talismanic striker taking a pen this is a little while ago. Wouldn't you yeah. want your best penalty takers up first? We've seen it before, too. I mean, he's referencing Chris Wondolowski not being able to to step up and take the fifth kick because yeah. uh, Tim Melia saved the first three kicks and it was over. But, um, yeah, terrific goalkeeping performance. He's an amazing saver of penalties just over his career. So that was just kind of unlucky for San Jose. In general, we've seen Cristiano Ronaldo also be the fifth kicker and not get to him before. You know, those are one of those situations. I think historically most penalties go to five kickers. More often than not, the fifth kicker does decide it. So you kind of want the people that have the best resolve, the best, uh, you know, calmness under pressure to, to, to be there. But there are times where we see other managers that go first. I mean, it's a good question. I, I think it really depends on confidence. I, I actually liken it to, I remember this distinctly. It was the 2006 MLS Cup final. It was Houston versus New England Revolution. They, had, they got to penalties. It was a crazy game. And New England scored an extra time, and I think Houston scored one minute later to tie it up. So they went into penalties. The Revs got to four MLS Cups and lost all four under when Taylor Twellman and Stevie Nichol was in charge. And during the penalties, both Steve Ralston and Clint Dempsey didn't take one because they both opted out. Ralston, you know, 120 minutes, was feeling a little tight. Uh, Clint, like, miraculously played because of an ankle injury. For me, that's more mentality. Like, you, you, you're going to go run around, but you can't kick a ball, like, 12 more yards to, to help your team. Jay Heaps ended up stepping up, like basically passed it back to the pad on side of the goalkeeper and, and the Dynamo won. So, yeah. but fair play to Heat. It's like a lot of it is who's feeling it. You know, who wants to step up and take the responsibility? Sometimes it's overwhelming. And for, you know, Ralston and Dempsey can, can answer for themselves what, what was really going on at that point. And, and it could 100% been been injury. And I'll give them a free pass on that because I know those guys are both tremendous players and good people. But, yeah. but yeah, you still want to get a vibe from your player. And if you see a player that's, not looking at you, looking at you in the eye, and you can tell body language doesn't really want to take one. You don't want that person to go have that long forty-yard walk up to the ball, put the ball down, and all the little mental games the goalkeeper's trying to play with you and all that stuff. So, so I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to it, other than when we're at training, who wants to step up and take one? And then once the five people kind of emerge, sometimes you have a competition to see who's better at them. Then, then you say, okay, who who wants to go first? Like, what order do you? It's almost like a player preference. It's rarely is this before the, the game the or like after the game. This is this is like during training. If we're in a competition where we knew there was going to be potential penalties, we would have like penalty shootouts after every training that week, and then through that, based on how people were taking them and and everything, there would be uh, a five that would be designated. More often than not, the coach goes up to you and says, hey would you mind going first? And the player will be like, ah, I actually rather go last, you know? And so it's really more player preference than you think. And, and, and that's fine. You want the player to be like, I want to go first. I want to take that responsibility. I do want to set the tone. So it is important to kind of hear from your players and see what kind of confidence they have at that moment. Yeah, this 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 made me think. On that note, this made me think. This question of uh, Euro '96 hashtag everything was better in the '90s. Um, <laughs> England Germany with the shootout. And there was this story. I think you can even see the footage of it on the field when Terry Venables, the manager, is basically saying, "Right, who's up for it? Who wants to take one?" Yeah. And obviously, as we know, Gareth Southgate elected to take one and it didn't go so well um, and this question also made me think of something you alluded to which is Cristiano Ronaldo who's quite often either takes the first or last penalty and when he takes the last penalty sometimes he hasn't had the opportunity to get on the field one of those times was Euro 2012 against Spain mm -hmm, I think it mm -hmm. was when uh, I think you were holding it down in Poland and Ukraine for kick TV while I was uh, holding the fort in New York that was a good <laughs> summer that was a good summer um, so yeah I think it, you're right it probably is on on a volunteer basis of who wants one but that that idea jimmy i can't abide risking not having ronaldo take a kick why mm. on earth even if he, i because the the, the 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 thought is he just wants fifth kick so he can he can win it you know because he's done yeah, that right. before i think he scored the winner in the champions league final didn't he at one he time and mm -hmm. i think he's done it for portugal in the world cup as well just getting that fifth kick because he wants to he wants that kick I don't know if I can I can agree with that being. I, if I was the coach, I was like, no, you're Ronaldo. You're going first. Can you can you do that? Well, let's say let's say you switched it and you you went with, you know, somebody else, and all of a sudden, you know, it's Matinho or I don't know, Joao Felix or whatever. Which those guys are actually pretty good. But if you went with like a fifth kicker who maybe isn't as notable and maybe hasn't accomplished as much, and all of a sudden 
it gets to the fifth kick and you're like, why would why wouldn't Ronaldo go fifth? Like, why wouldn't you want your best kicker taking the most high, highly pressured kick? I don't know. I just think if if situations were reversed and it went the other way, you'd be saying the same exact thing. So yeah, I don't know. Forgive me for my lack of Conrad knowledge here. I've I've got the uh, the header against Mexico seed into my brain, but did you ever take penalties? I did take a couple in uh, Open Cup, and I made one and I missed one, so I got that going for me. Fifty fifty guy. <laughs> so obviously, you know, it's a very different thing in training than in a game. Is is it in your head when you're doing it on the field and it counts? Is it is it a very different experience from from? I, I would say the walk from your group where everybody's kind of huddled at the, the midfield line to go down is a very daunting walk. And that's where you're basically talking to yourself. Am I going to go to the corner I usually like to shoot at or am I going to switch it here? Does this goalkeeper know me? Have they taken notes on what I can do? And then obviously you're starting to look at the ball. And then like, do you make the decision to look at the goalkeeper? Do you look at the corner that you're pretending to shoot at or the, the corner that you are shooting at? Or do you not look at the corners at all? Do you just look at the ball the whole time? You know, that type of stuff. So... There's a lot to think about in those 40 to 50 yards. And I can imagine, and I remember seeing Roberto Baggio do that long walk up, you know, in the, the World Cup in uh, 94 in, at, at the Rose Bowl before he missed, you know, like that, just the pressure, man. And I can't even imagine. And then he, you know, he hit actually, he hit it really well. It just went over, but yeah, um, was unlucky for it to go over. But yeah, that's, that's tough. And, and the one time that I missed... I just I didn't go up with as much confidence. And the one time that I did make it, I was like, F this, man. I'm I'm putting in this corner. I know where it is. I know where I want to put it. And I buried it. I was like, wow, that's the best penalty I've so ever had, taken. Had you in my made life, that so. decision at the center circle or when you got to the penalty spot? Yeah, I'd already made that decision. Like I, this is the corner I'm going. I had had the benefit. I was never one of the top five. So I was like sixth or seventh and it went into extras. So you can feel some pressure because you know you have to make it for your team to based on if you're first or second kicker mm. uh, for your team. Um you know, but but yeah, we went first, so I had to kind of set the tone as the seventh kicker or whatever, and I just put it, I put it in the top corner to the left, goalkeeper right, and uh, the other one I kind of, I just didn't hit it very hard. I didn't hit it with confidence. You know, I tried to do the old cant and not pass it in, and he was like, "Nah, I'm gonna read this." <laughs> didn't work out. It's one of those things a penalty. It should be so easy, but even in rec league, it gets in my head, and yeah. it's just it's one of those things where I think, you know, there's a spot in the top two corners where it's impossible for the keeper to get it. Place it there, and it goes yeah. in. But it's just not that simple, is it? It's, right. it's one no. of those mental things. Very strange. I, I wish I would have done the Jorginho hop. Maybe that would have changed my thing. I was going to ask. So if you <laughs> back in the day, if you'd have done some stunt like that, if you'd hop or you've done some sort of newfangled thing, would your teammates have gone, what was that? Well, it depends if you make it or miss it. But I also <laughs> will say that the referee would be like, what are you doing? You got to take that again. And I, that's the last thing you want is to take a, another one again. <laughs> you know, so yeah, interesting. It's interesting. All right, good stuff. Let's move on to a question. This one's from Twitter for you, Jim, uh, from JDB. Breaking down the young USMNT defenders, who would you feel comfortable playing next to in a game that counts? Yeah, great question. What's up, JDB? Um, you know, I've been pretty pretty vocal about some players in particular. I'm not the biggest Tim Ream fan. Mm. Uh, I don't. I think he did serve a purpose for us moving forward. I, I guess I still hold some of the us not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup uh, against him, and, and a lot of those guys that were core players in that. We lost to Costa Rica 2-0 in New York. I thought he didn't look very good in that one. And now I feel like I've always got that seared in my brain. Talk about things seared in your brain. And I, I, I can't shake it. You know, I just feel like that was a game where we needed leaders in the back to make plays and he didn't make those. So that's one thing that I don't, and I don't think he's that great for Fulham, to be honest. Um, so Tim Ream, he, that's not one guy I would do. Matt Miazga for me is a little bit of a loose cannon. I think he's tough. I think that he has something to his game that I like, but he's also maybe so unpredictable as a center back pairing. Like I don't, I, he just seems a little reckless, and, and I don't like that in my center backs. I think you can take those risks in midfield, but as a center back, you got to be a little bit cooler and calmer. And I think he's emotional, and I don't know if he, I, I need an emotional center back. Again, they can be higher up the field, but but uh, that position. So Miazga and Reem probably out. Uh, John Anthony Brooks, I think, would be in there for sure. I like Aaron Long. I like Walker Zimmerman. I, I like uh, Chris Richards, I think, has a bright future. I'm hoping that he gets more minutes for Bayern Munich this season. So those would be the ones that kind of uh, that jump out at me in some ways. But I think John Anthony Brooks is in there for sure. Yeah. And then, and then the rest of the guys uh, are up there. But, dude, the future is bright for the U.S. men's national team. I'm yeah. really exciting about, excited about the depth that we have in, in multiple positions. But I do think that our out-and-out out number nine and maybe our center backs or the one next to John Anthony Brooks is still up for grabs. But uh, everywhere else, maybe even left back, but everywhere else is pretty locked in. And we got like two or three great names at each position. 
I, I was wondering if you were going to pick Brooks. I was wondering, uh, but part of me thought you might pick Chris Richards for this question. Not sure. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, I would say Brooks right now because he's got a little bit more experience. I don't know if you guys people people consider him young. I mean, he's he's uh, 25 or 26, I think. So he's mm -hmm. been around. He's got more experience. I like a little bit of experience sprinkled into my center back pairing, but but I think for the like what's coming, yeah, Chris Richards, I hope really emerges as as one of those guys that we're excited about moving forward. And but uh, again. I just feel like there should be a nice contrast with your center backs. One that's a little bit more of the vocal leader, maybe the other one that's that can do a little bit more of the the thankless work and and like covers a lot of ground. Frankly, you know, you need a good. I think you need a good athlete for sure in one yep. of those positions, and then you need somebody that maybe is not as good of an athlete but can organize and get people in good spots to make plays. Good stuff, JDB. Thank you for the question. Uh, let's move on to Tristan Soccerball. Okay. Uh, why does Arsenal suck so bad? I'm looking forward to you getting into this one. As a former player, how do you get your confidence back after a bad spell of games? Arsenal course in 15th place, two points in the last six games, one point in the last five home games. I've got things to say. What do you got to say, Jim? Oh, I don't know where you want to start, Ryan. I think that um, I think there's a confidence crisis. I think there has been one for many years. I don't think... I'm not going to blame the fans, man. The players still have to go out there and, and play, but I think that the noise around Arsenal, they become a bit of a meme. And I think that's sometimes hard to shake. And, you know, when you got, when you seriously are flying a plane that says Wenger out behind, like what is even happening to your club when it gets to that level, especially with a manager in Arsene Wenger who had done so much for the club. It wasn't like he was some joker that just came in and talked, you know, was like Alan Pardew who just talked a big game and then got out. You know, this was like a, a, a guy that's a decorated manager who has changed the game in England in some ways. So and you the think they're ungrateful the in that way then? Oh, 100%. You know, and I think they, they just ran off some guy who, yeah, maybe it was time for him to move on. But the way that they did it was, it was I think, embarrassing in some ways, you know. And, and you know, they tried with Unai Emery. It seemed like everybody was patient with him. And he tried to bring in some players. Uh, but, but they've signed a lot of guys that I just don't think are Arsenal players. And I think Manchester United falls into the same thing. You're like, Granted, Jaka, like Arsenal, like that guy, you know, there was, I've, I haven't been on Jaka's side from day one. I'm like, this guy is not an Arsenal player. And, I, you know, the same thing with, with Manchester, you know, Marijuan Fellaini, like, listen, I, terrific pr Premier League player for a middle of the, the table club. Not Manchester United, dude. Like, there's just too much quality. You can't have Fellaini associated with gigs and skulls and Keen and he's just, no, it's not the same, you know, so... I think they kind of fell into that a little bit, and and maybe Arson didn't move as quickly as he should have on some some names. I remember he could have triggered Luis Suarez's transfer fee, and they paid like they offered like one more dollar than or whatever to get him triggered or something. Like just yeah. pay ten more million, get Luis Suarez, and I think your club would have been fine for those years. You know, you you would have got him in his peak peak time, and so there are a lot of those little things that that uh, maybe Arson's. You know, he just was very against the transfer window and how much money was being spent. But that was just the modern game, and and he refused to, to to play along. But then they sign, you know, Nicola Pepe for eighty million. You're like, wait a second. I know Arsene Wenger's not here anymore, but what? You know, I like I like Pepe. I think he's a good player. I just don't know if he fits into the system. And I just think yeah. there's a vibe about Arsenal that isn't good. And and even though they've shown promise and they've got some talented young players, it's just like it's weird. It's like the it's like the older guys don't buy in, or or there's not anybody who's kind of a holdover from the, the the years where they had a lot of success that can show them what that tradition and what it means to wear the arsenal shirt i don't know i don't even know what to, where to put my finger on i'm actually very curious to hear what you have to say i'm gonna put fingers all over the place because <laughs> there's a lot of fingers to be pointed here i think you, you touched on a lot of important things there venga sort of played above his means whereas i think arteta plays below them because they're a spending club now they don't they didn't yeah. used to be they're a spending club now but there's lots of i think there's been a big sort of decline off the field and a very concentrated one on the field as well and they're both sort of happening simultaneously I think a lot of the issues you mentioned there uh, I think what's important is a lack of discipline you mentioned mm. Granit Xhaka there Arsenal have a history of you know under Wenger they got a lot of red cards let's be fair to them but I think Arteta's had seven red cards in less than a year uh, his team have uh, and no one's had more than that in that time and you know it's, it's just a, a lack of discipline to me speaks to people who are un frustrated and unhappy with the system right if they're, mm -hmm. if they're doing that kind of thing and not having the discipline to stay stay on the field. So I think that's a big issue. That's something cultural, maybe something within the dressing room. It's an issue. And mm -hmm. if we're looking at what Arteta's doing, you know, I, I'm not sure. Lacazette as a number 10, for example. I'm not sure. I think the jury's out on that one. The the two players in front of the defense, which in the in the modern game are so, so important. When you've got Xhaka being one of them, that's an issue. And uh, Partey's a great player, but I, I, he's not often paired with Elneny. I think Partey Elneny, 
partnership we've seen maybe once or twice this season. That works really well, and that's not been executed a lot. And then going to the issues you mentioned there with recruitment and you mentioned some of the older players not buying in. There's a lot of older players in that team. That's, That's a big issue. Right? Like, and you look at who they sign. A lot of the big signings have been approaching 30 or over 30. Willian being over 30 and getting a big old contract. And I must admit, when I saw the start of the season, that game against Fulham and he was bossing it, I was like, okay, this is a brilliant signing, but maybe maybe not so much now with with a bit of perspective. But even like when they brought Mkhitaryan in and Aubameyang, uh, Socrates, David Luiz, all kind of not young players. Most big teams will sign young players, under under 24, under 25 um, that's generally the gist of it, isn't it, when you're a big team like that. You try and buy young and invest in those players. And, you know, Gabriel's good. Partey's been a good buy. Martinelli's been good. But a lot of the, the, the transfer policy, I think, has been very poor. Poor recruitment. And maybe we look at Edu, the technical director, for that. That's, that's got an issue there. And um, even Gazidis, yeah. you know, departing as well, the yeah. CEO. That's important. I think it, it's, a, it's a rot, Jimmy, that seems to be at all levels of the club. And I've, I've pointed multiple fingers there. So I guess the other part of the question is, Jimmy, is about confidence and how do you get it back? Because when you're in this kind of rut, how do you turn it around? Is it as simple as getting a Pochettino? There's something more to it, right? Well, I think a Pochettino, if you did make a change, I believe the players, when a, when a coaching change happens, your, your mind is open again to the possibilities of what's possible. When you have the same manager and it's clear that it's not working and you're getting all this grief... And for Arsenal, it's like times 10 because of their fan base who are, uh, you know, in some ways it's warranted, but in many times it's very overdramatic, you know, and so everything's heightened. The emotion is high. You know, if, if, if Arsenal win, like, all right, cool, we expect that. And if they lose, they're the worst team ever. Everybody needs, nobody's good enough to wear the shirt, that type of stuff. I think there are obviously a lot of the, the people that support Arsenal that have kind of grown up with the club. You know, they remember the Invincibles. So they're always, any any Arsenal team is always, you know, pinned up or compared to to that team in particular, which seems a little unfair, but it does build up some false hope. As I mentioned before, one of my favorite hobbies is watching the meltdown of Arsenal fans every weekend. For more often than not, it's it, it does pay off, and uh, they're easy to trigger. But I don't know. It's it's it's. I do think that it would be some open mindedness to a change. There, you'd have to. Everybody kind of starts from square one when there's a, there's a change. So I think it could be a possibility. I think it feel pretty hard. Hard done by for Mikel Arteta. He inherited some of these deals like Xhaka and Mustafi and and some of these, you know. And obviously he he uh, put in for Pepe and they got Thomas Partey and and or I don't know if he was in part of the, the Pepe thing, but but um, yeah, I don't know how much of a stamp he's had on it. They've got some good younger players coming through. The you know Bukuya Saka is awesome. You know he's just one of many that I like. And Katia has he really kicked on? I don't know. You know, it's tough. I don't know how much Pochettino is going to be able to change. Let's just use him as an example. Could really yeah. change how these guys are hitting the back of the net. But yeah, you're right. In terms of investment, recruitment, it hasn't been good. Giving Mezit the big deal probably didn't benefit anybody, you know. So there were options where they made some bad decisions. And, and now they're paying the consequences for them. Yeah. And I don't, they're not going to get relegated. But I think it's going to be a real struggle this season, even if they sign, happen to sign. I just don't how do you convince anybody to come to Arsenal right now? I think that's the hard part is because to go back to my meme thing, like everybody knows they can pretend they don't go online and look, but everybody knows Arsenal's a meme, you know, and, and have been for a little bit. Of, and when they won the FA Cup, you can feel all that kind of memeness back off a little bit. You're like, all right, cool. They're back to it. They're at least going to be competitive and maybe push for the top four. Hey, man, if they get top 10, I mean, that, that would be at this point uh, a pretty good accomplishment because... I just don't see how they're going to turn this around. And with regain, with with to your question, I haven't even answered that. To regain confidence, I mean, you just have to. I, mean, I wish they could play Dundalk in the Europa League every week. I think that would probably help out their confidence. But um, they have to kind of get back to basics. Uh, and this, as boring as that sounds, like just taking pride in making plays. And, and I don't know if I see enough of that consistently. You might see Arsenal look good for 45 minutes, maybe even 60, but are they putting that together for a full 90? You know, maybe eight of the guys are doing well, but then David Luiz acts like David Luiz, and now you're down two goals, you know, and and that just kills the, the spirit and soul of everybody. I was actually pretty pleased to see them go down to Southampton and, and fight back. Mm. I thought once Southampton scored the first goal, that was it. Like Arsenal's going to fold, but they fought back. Aubameyang got a goal, and we'll see if that kicks them on. But they have a tough schedule coming up. They got Everton away, and Everton looks good right now. Two clean sheets in a row. Then they got City in the Cup, and then they got Chelsea at the Emirates, where they're not very good at the Emirates, so it's kind of a Chelsea being the favorites. And then Brighton before the new year, and then it all kind of starts over, and we'll see what happens. But 
I don't know. This is a tough like 14 days for for Mikel Arteta, which could determine his future with the club. Yeah, and what are your thoughts on Arteta? Because obviously you said you mentioned the FA Cup win, and they look pretty good after the restart back in um, whenever it was in the summer. But obviously things aren't going so hot now. Is he is he the guy, or is he the guy who put out cones for Pep Guardiola? Yeah, I don't know. He seems desperate right now. I think that his lack of experience is showing. I don't know. You know, everything might be calm there and they might be smiling and having a good time, but but he's clearly not pressing the right buttons. I don't know if he's found his his perfect 11. Maybe that's due to injury, and that, that could be a good argument. He's got this mesit cloud over the whole team who's tweeting, good luck, guys, you know, because he's barred from everything else, which is just kind of random. They just need to get past that situation. So he's got a couple things that he's juggling, and I'm sure there are big headaches for him in a lot of different ways. I don't know if they really have an identity. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, if you want to talk about confidence, one of the ways you get confidence is because you have an identity. You have something you can lean on game in and game out. Hey, if things aren't going well, we're very good at least doing this. And that, a lot of that is, is the stuff that people don't talk about enough or it's just so cliche that people just kind of move past it. But it's, it's doing the little things that, that make a difference. Plain simple. Um, uh, covering for each other, you know, like taking pride and, and making plays and, and being there and being a group and just being bastards, being hard. So it's okay. You don't have to play like Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry every game just because there's a history of that. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to grind it out and get results. And I think that's where they are. And I think that's usually the best way to kind of fight through a bad spell is just you got to go out there and grind it. Get out there and grind it. That's Conrad's advice. All right, good stuff, Jimmy. Thank you very much. I've kept you far too long, Jimmy. I've got one last question okay, to squeeze in for you, if that's all right. It's a yeah. very, very serious and important one we're going to tackle here, <laughs> last one. It's from John Bishop. I'm presuming not the Liverpudlian comedian. Who would win between 11 Weston McKennies and 11 Tyler Adamses? Think hard. <laughs> Think hard. Now, I'll, I'll weigh in a little bit here and say you that... You go first. You go first. You go first. I look. I ran through the stats. I went on who scored. I was trying to discuss, you know, who would be the best in defence, who would be the best goalkeeper, who would be best in, you know, all these different positions. And my many minutes of research led me to think, I don't really know. I think <laughs> my one, my one, my two data points I'll give you, Jimmy, is that um, is that McKenny is six foot one and Adams is five foot nine. He's got a few inches on him, so to speak. Um, so might be better defensively, might be better goalkeeper, might have defensive advantage in some ways. I also think that McKenny is a bit meaner and maybe a bit more in your face. And that might give him an advantage if there were 11 of him, if that was amplified by 11. Um, so I'm going to give the very, very narrow edge to Weston McKenney, but I look forward to your response. <laughs> so I have a great deal of respect for Tyler Adams. I think that when we look back on this generation of players, he'll be the one that we talk about maybe the most, just because I think he's captain material. I think he's the guy right. that will is kind of the glue. He's going to be our Angola Conte for Leicester, you know, just that unsung hero that's going to make the plays that are necessary both defensively and offensively. But when I think about 11 of those guys, man, they would be very disciplined. I think that that kid has, you know, he ticks all the boxes about being and taking a great deal of pride of being a good professional. But there is something about the swagger of Weston McKinney that if you had 11 of those, I think he's more of a box to box guy. I think he is more comfortable in and around the box than the attacking third. I think those types of qualities would probably win out over a Tyler Adams at some point. Mm. Uh, I do risk, or I do, I will say that he does take some risks. So Weston Mc, two Weston McKinney's at center back, you know, like where do the outside backs go? Well, they're all bombing forward. You know, it's like a, it's like a <laughs> two nine formation. Everybody's up, up top and two holding back. Um, I think Weston McKinney, probably just for that little bit of quality, attacking prowess that he has, that he's looking to go forward. Not that Tyler Adams doesn't, but that's not his game. He's a little bit more just kind of keeping things in place, organizing people in front of him, blocking passing lanes. It'd be a great game, to be honest. I'd love to see it, but I think Weston McKinney would probably have enough sauce to outlast Tyler Adams. I could see like a 2-1. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy, for taking this question with the seriousness it deserves. Of course, 100%. 100%. I like your comments on Tyler Adams there, but by that logic, um, when the US do win the 2026 World Cup, he'll be the first one to get the trophy then, won't he? Yes, he will, and I hope that he does it. I want to be there for it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. All right, Jimmy, I can't thank you enough for your time today. You're a superstar. I thank you for joining us for listening to questions, and I hope you stop by again soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would love that, and please give my best to, to Taylor and everybody at the Total Soccer Show. Uh, obviously tough times, but uh, in honor of Daryl, uh, it's, it's a real thrill for me to be on the show. Thrilled to have you. Thanks, Jim. 